Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the latest Everything is Black and White podcast in association with eToro. I'm Sean McCormick and today I'm joined by Chief NUFC writer Lee Ryder and NUFC writer Chris Woff. Um, guys, you've just fresh back from the long trip to Bournemouth and you've had a couple of days of stewing it now. What's your thoughts on that draw uh, two days on? To be honest, I think before the game, loads of people would have taken a point, uh, in my opinion. I know Rafa was probably the only one who said he, he wouldn't have been happy with a point. Now the dust settled a bit and the circumstances of the game and a lot of things went against Newcastle, you'd probably say, yeah, that's actually not a bad result. Um, you know, it was a, a game that I felt was slipping away from Newcastle. You know, first half was tough. It was a real bonus to go in at the break with the lead. I, I didn't expect it, especially when Newcastle... I thought the last action of the first half was going to be defending a corner and I was worried that they were going to concede but they broke they got the free kick they scored they gave themselves a platform to go on but the second half they came out and they were all over the place really and you know went 2-1 down and then could have been 3-1 at at one stage Bournemouth looked like the team that were going to you know push on and seal the game but thankfully Richie pops up gets equaliser and it, and it turns out to be you know a, a real positive day and you know everyone went home on a high I suppose the manner of the draw as well in, in terms of as Lee says uh, Richie's last last minute uh, equaliser it felt more like a win in the end than, than, than the draw didn't it it did in the end yeah it was a again I didn't see the, the winner sorry the, the level I come in, as Lee says about the, the end of the first half I didn't necessarily see Richie's coming and Newcastle had a couple of opportunities there'd been the one situation where I met in the potentially back past it and Rafa was furious about that but it looked like the game was, was just going really and then suddenly Edlin puts the ball in the box and Richie uh, couldn't have hit that ball any better and wonderful uh, volley and I think the emotions got the better of him a little bit in terms of he realised he didn't want to celebrate but initially he had uh, stuck his arms out and ran across to where the fans were but it was it was a strange game all round I think Rafa was quite frustrated afterwards A with, with Mike Dean as I'm sure get on who didn't like some of the decisions that were given but I think the manner of the game, I don't think you particularly would have liked the way Newcastle's second half were very open. They didn't really manage the game that well. And I think that he'd have been frustrated in that regard. And, and although he probably didn't say that in his press conference, you just get the sense that the, his demeanour on the touchline throughout the entire second half, he was frantically shouting instructions to his team. So I don't think he'd have been overly uh, impressed with some of that. We all joke about Mike Dean and the Mike Dean show and his theatrics and, and what have you. But I mean, a lot of pundits have made the point that he's on 99 red cards. Obviously, there's the Lerma challenge in the first half, which could have been a red card. Rafa wasn't happy with him at all um, post-match. I mean, what, what from your point of view, what was Mike Dean's performance like on Saturday? So, so there's a suggestion out there that he's saving his 100th red well, card what, for, the, for... Yeah, the suggestion seems to be that Jefferson Lerma isn't a big enough name for it to be the 100th right. red card, you know, after dinner speaking and what have you. Yeah. Jefferson Lerma isn't going to quite cut the mustard there. <laughs> you know, a kind of a more household name. But yeah, what was what in terms of my team performance on Saturday, what did you make of it? Well, you know, with referees... Um, 
I mean, I've played football at very low level and you come up against referees and the ones that annoy me the most are the ones where they, have, they think they've got the big personality and they think they're the most important person on the pitch. And Mike Dean fits into that category um, for me. I think he, he likes to take centre stage. Um, I mean, blatant back pass, you know, you're frightened to give that one. And, you know, other decisions in the game, there's the Rondon penalty incident got pulled back, clear penalty. Um, the Fernandez one, I'm not saying it was definitely a penalty, but what the way that one happened, I think he gave him a decision to make, which I was seeing on Saturday, Chris. Uh, just the way he put his arm out and, you know, if you dangle that in front of someone like Mike Dean, he's going to, again, take centre stage and give the penalty. But obviously there's the DeAndre Yedlin one as well. So a lot of things, as Rafa said, went wrong. I mean, you can't have it all. You can't have everything that go, go for you in a game. It's just not the way it works, unfortunately. Um, but, the, you know, that you did get a lot of things wrong. And, yeah, I think that was probably a red card as well. So I'm being rest and see who uh, decides to send off for his 100th. <laughs> and Chris, it's not obviously the first time Mike Dean and Rafa Benitez have kind of crossed you know, cross swords this 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 season. Wolves at home was another one where there was a few controversial incidents. Is it just something about Mike Dean? I think there is something about Mike Dean. I have to be honest. I thought he was worse in terms of decisions against Newcastle in the Wolves game, and I think that that played in both fans and Benitez's mind on Saturday and made some of the decisions maybe look worse than they necessarily were. Benitez on the touchline at one stage almost seemed to be gesturing towards the fourth official who was Lee Pro, but as if reminding him after the penalty had been given, saying, oh, well, up at St. James's Park, Jose Perez gets elbowed in the face by Willie Bolly and we didn't get a penalty, and yet this referee thinks this is a penalty. He was almost acting that out on the touchline. And I, I thought, I agree with Leon the Fernandez one, look, it, it probably isn't what you'd call store one penalty, but Mike Dean is looking straight at him. It's naive, if nothing else, to put your arm over Aki, and I don't even think you really needed to do it, to be honest. And the... the the one that was most apparently for me was the DeAndre Yedlin one the first half and I, I think that the football has a problem here in general because I spoke to an ex-player after the game and he was saying to me oh yeah but but is that enough for a penalty but if that is anywhere else on the pitch that is a foul he doesn't touch the ball Yedlin crosses the ball in they gets wiped out how is that not a penalty regardless of whether the ball in is terrible he wipes him out after he's crossed the ball in so for me that was a poor decision I don't think all round that Dean had a terrible performance. I don't think the Lerma one was necessarily a definite red. Perez put in a dodgy tackle early on as well, which almost gets forgotten about here as well. I think I think almost the baggage that comes with Mike Dean was was the big frustration for Benitez in particular, maybe Newcastle fans on Saturday. And it does seem that he very rarely gives decisions in Newcastle's favour, I would say that. I mean, imagine be imagine getting stuck in a lift with Mike, with Mike Dean. <laughs> I mean, that, that then you could weigh him up and see if it, is it all for sure, you know what I mean? But it would be... He's, he, Years ago, you know, you used to be able to speak to referees after the game. Now you, you can't go anywhere near them because of the, the rule change and all that sort of thing. But, you know, I kind of think of a more annoying referee. Before, before that was probably Graham Paul. Yeah. He he used to like the to be the the star man on, on a day. So Newcastle have never seemed to get a look of referees. They, they always come up here, in my opinion, and the, people like seem to say to them, you know, whether hotel or whatever before the game say, Oh, don't get don't get sucked in by the crowd up there, you know, because they'll be shouting for penalties and red cards. Do you know? Just keep your head, and I think that's in the head of most referees when they're up here, and they find it hard to, uh, you know, just referee the game for what what's going on. 
It was interesting the end of the game because Benitez went on and shook hands with Mike Dean. They exchanged a quick word. I don't think he said too much, but they definitely exchanged a quick word. Um, was it Mike Dean who Pochettino had a go at the other week? Was that yeah, what I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, I, I don't think he's... Many uh, managers are, are massive fans of Mike Dean. I'll just put it that way. Who was it he gave the penalty against early in the season? You know where he... he there's, there's the gif of it all the time now where he really he like spreads his legs and points at the spot really oh, dramatically. Text, textbook, isn't Man, it? Yeah, Man, City, yeah. Man City, Chelsea. Yeah, it might have yeah. been, yeah. And he just, the, the you see, that, that, that for me, there's no need for that. Yeah. That is making himself centre <laughs> stage. I don't understand that. It's almost like he wants that gift to be made. Well, that's it. Like, do you know, I think it is more to do with the social media age. He knows that it's something people talk about now. So if he does make a, not necessarily a ridiculous decision, but a high-profile decision, he knows he's going to be he's yeah, spoken a, about. There's a, com- a collection of them, isn't there, on, yeah. on Soccer M, I think it is. Um, and maybe it is, you know, paving the way towards a, an after-dinner circuit, you know, career after yeah. after refereeing. But, I mean, my, my favourite referee used to be um, Paul Durkin. <laughs> yeah, I remember Paul Durkin, yeah. Scolesy, that's what the players used to call him. And he, and, he, and he just seemed to be able to referee the game keep a smile on his face and just keep everything nice and, and balanced now I, I you know Paul Durkin for me is the if, if there's any young referees listening if you want to be like a referee Paul Durkin is Paul Durkin the referee who do you remember when Alan Shearer got fell by Tim Howard that's right in Old Trafford that was Paul Durkin and he came yeah. out and apologised didn't he on, yeah. on TV I, I thought that was quite refreshing good but, yeah. good you know human touch to do yeah. and you know then he doesn't make up for the penalty but I think that's where you've got to You've got a referee. I mean, they are look. They are some good referee. I mean, talking about referees there, five sides and Sunday League and all that. There are some brilliant referees out there. I mean, you've got to be you've got to be some character to get up on a Sunday morning and do that. I think you know you've got to give everyone credit who does it. But there are like anything, you know. There's like a, a, a percentage, a small percentage that just let them down. And Mike Mike Dean seems to sometimes be that small percentage. And it's not just it's not just me. He's upset, obviously. Pochettino, Rafa. Um, Many other managers and players, but is he not neighbours with Rafa? He's from the world, isn't he? Area, yeah. So it could have been something dead innocent. It could have been. I mean, in terms of Rafa, was asked about VAR a couple of times after game and again, game and again. He said, "100 percent, we need it." He said that after the Wolves game in December. And if there's one positive to hopefully take on forward, look, VAR is not going to stop people talking about incidents. The amount of VAR incidents which now talk about instead, but maybe rather than talking about individual referees, we're going to be talking about the way decisions are refereed if, if they're going to VAR. So I do think hopefully, if and when that does come in next season, that may change some of this. I read Tony Cascarino's column this morning and he's complaining there's too many penalties and VAR will bring more penalties. Well, I, I disagree. I just think that, yes, you probably will see a spurt of a greater number of penalties in the first three to six months in the Premier League, but then players will understand that they can't do what Fernandez did yeah. on Saturday. If that had gone to VAR, I don't think that decision would have been overturned because technically it's a foul. So th- this is where I think that, that, that VAR some managers at the moment are hiding behind the fact that they can see Arvar would have overturned that whereas in that situation and I also thought the Wolves game at home yes Newcastle would have had a penalty and Bolly probably sent off but also DeAndre Yedlins wouldn't have been overturned as Benitez suggested because by the letter of the law that was a foul so hopefully VAR will provide greater clarity if not uh, end the debate entirely We'll move it away from uh, Mike Dean because I'm sure he'd love it if we made a whole podcast about his refereeing decisions but (laughs) On the pitch, I mean, now seven games to go, Newcastle, seven points clear, albeit Cardiff, etc., have a game in hand, but as good as safe now? I think so. I think the 
the best way to look at it if you if you want to work it out for me is to look at Cardiff's running mm. Cardiff have got a horrendous run I think they've got four four of the top four maybe five of the top teams and I just can't see them catching Newcastle so therefore supposing the other two teams I mean Huddersfield are gone we kind of, we've got to discount them now they're on 14 points they're not going to take something unbelievable that for that to happen uh, Fulham pretty much gone uh, so it's it's going to be Cardiff or Southampton and uh, we'll see what happens but um, I, th- I think Newcastle 35 points should be enough but we all know they can get more in the next seven games but it's essentially 36 as well when you compare to Cardiff because of the goal difference yeah. the goal difference is so superior that straight away so that Cardiff have to win three games for a start just to get one ahead of Newcastle and Newcastle would have to lose every single game between now and the end of the season I can't see I can't see that happening. I just can't see Cardiff picking up enough points for a start. 35 may well be enough. I think 38 certainly will be. Benitez suggested that on Saturday. He was asked, are you safe? And he said, well, 38 I think will be enough. 40 would be would guarantee it. But I think that, yeah, it's just a matter of time now for, for when Newcastle survive. It's not an if, it's a when. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you've both seen so, someone point out that Newcastle's record after 31 games is exactly identical to to last season, which is which is pretty remarkable. Um, I want to bring in a, a couple of fan questions here from the tweeting mag, so thanks for your question. Um, leave you answer this first one. Um, in 2019, only Man City, Man United, Liverpool and Arsenal have taken more points than Newcastle United. Are Newcastle currently overachieving or should Rafa stay in the summer? Could we become top six to eight contenders? Uh, well, the first part of it are the overachieving. Um, I think once they got that bad run out of the way at the start, and you know they got a good run where there wasn't many injuries, and obviously they got Almiron in. Uh, I think everyone fancied them to you know replicate what they were doing last year, and they have done that. So they're probably about where you would think they should be at the minute. So that answers that part. Can Rafa take them onto the top six next season? That's a big ask. I think it's more the top eight really now that you're looking at because um, you know the big four are, are, are going to be the same and then you've got the your Arsenal's Everton's Leicester's you know their contenders to to be in and around that um, so I think top six would be a huge ask um, I mean definitely would be manager of the season if you could do that but we'll we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens if they, if they can just get through a season where there's no threat of relegation and you're just mid-table and pushing around the top 10 I think that's exactly what Newcastle need now and if they keep Rafa then he's more than capable of doing that what was interesting the other week was it was just before Rafa was going to be celebrating his third year anniversary and it was sort of ahead of that in the press conference he was asked is there still a project at Newcastle can you still achieve what you initially wanted to achieve and he said well if you are if if A were given the money but B you do things correctly you can certainly target top eight and then as long as you do things consistently well over a long period of time A you can go for for the cup and and or one of the cups and, and Europe but B if one of the big six has a has an off season you you can then be perf- you can be ready to be the next person to get into that so I think that I think the the top six are in a different league of their own almost for want of a better phrase Everton have spent hundreds of millions and are no closer to getting towards them now they've spent money badly but at the same time it just shows it's very difficult to bridge the gap the the gap is so huge but I certainly think that Newcastle realistically could be challenging top 8 challenging with, with Wolves 
Leicester, Everton for the for those positions between seventh and tenth, and then from there, if they do that over time, build and maybe long term think about trying to, to to break into it one year. The second question that's been sent to me, I think it's a very decent one to be fair. He's talking about Rafa's short blanket system that he refers to quite a bit, and obviously the start of the season, Castle defensively have been very sound, but they kind of lacked a bit in the attacking third. Um, but he's asking now, since Almiron's coming, has Rafa shifted his short blanket to make us a more attacking team at the expense of having a weaker defence? Well, they've conceded a, a few in recent games, so that the part on the bus thing is now, you know, seems to have disappeared. Uh, they're taking their chances, that's a good thing. You know, that's um, a really good run of games now where the they've done well in the final third Almiron's bought something very different to the team um, but I, I think he said something to me the other week um, when I was talking to him he said that you know as as we get closer to safety we're, we're going to be able to you know push on and attack in, in some, some games so there's an opportunity uh, coming up obviously after Arsenal I don't think you would you'd go flying forward against Arsenal would you but you know, in the home games after that, maybe there's a chance to really go for the jugular. And uh, you know, they've got the players. They've got Almiron, Perez, Rondon, who can who can get the goals. So I think it'd be good to just really watch a good attacking game. And uh, I think that they are getting close at that. I think when he first moved to this three centre back system, I think we all thought it was essentially a five man defence, and it was be almost to try and stop the opposition. But actually, as it's developed. I think it's become a system where he now knows it can work at St James's Park, particularly when Cher is available and Lejeune are available. You have two centre-backs who are given the licence to A, play the ball forward and B, run forward with it. The the wing-backs really push on. And so I think it has become more attacking away from home. I think that's why there's been the reverse of home and away form as well. Early in the season when Newcastle were, were more safety-first, teams could come and pick them off. A little bit and almost do to Newcastle as they want to do to them on the counter attack now away from home they do look a bit more defensively exposed I think out wide they're getting caught out a few times Lejeune as much as I like him as a defender is not the quickest the same with Cher so whoever's playing in those two positions can get caught out Fernandez at the weekend looked like a player who hadn't played in a while and Dummett was for, for someone who hadn't started a game in a long time I thought was excellent and he covered uh, quite a back quite a lot for Newcastle so I think they are a bit more defensively exposed and I don't think Benitez will be overly happy with the balance of it yet, but I think you'd be pleased that now I've sorted out attacking-wise and they just need to, to maybe uh, in, just shore up a little bit at the back because they are looking, particularly away from home, a bit vulnerable. Do you think that balance is something you'll kind of look to address, particularly over the next two weeks now he's got two weeks on the training pitch? I think so, yeah. I'd be looking, particularly if a lot of his players don't go in at national duty, which quite a few of them won't, so I think he'll be... Uh, if you're thinking how can we just make it a little bit more so because there's, there's points where particularly away from home the amount of space opposition teams have to attack into makes Newcastle vulnerable I thought that at West Ham I have to be fair on Saturday is slightly different because against Bournemouth they are just so gung-ho to a certain degree that they just flood forward in numbers and it is difficult to it, it was it was chaotic the second half on Saturday and I think that's why Benitez wouldn't have liked it he likes structure and at the moment Newcastle don't quite have control over matches I think as much as he'd want so yeah I think he will be looking to address that a little bit over this fortnight In the attacking area Solomon Rondon scored his 10th goal of the season in all competitions on on Saturday brilliant free kick um, Isaac Hayden came off the game and said Newcastle have to do everything they can to make sure he stays permanently um, you've got the likes of Tony Cascarino saying today that he's the best signing 
any teams made in the Premier League this season. He also said he could be a 50 million player, and while that's far-fetched, the longer it kind of goes on where Rondon keeps scoring goals, keeps playing well, granted he's coming up to becoming 30 years old, but is there a danger that you know he is becoming more and more valuable to West Brom where they can kind of ask for more money, which Newcastle simply won't commit to because of his age? Yeah, I, th- I think the way the way the deal's structured, West Brom, if, if they don't get promoted, then the fee's sixteen million and that sixteen point five million, and that's it. It's just right. a clause, so that Newcastle will be able to activate that if they choose to pay the money. If if they go up, I think it's twenty million. Now, if they go up, then I suppose he he might be interested in staying there because you know they're going to be in the Premier League. If Newcastle don't pay the money. They might want him to stay, but if they, if they stay in the championship, I think Newcastle are definitely in the box seat to get him. Um, but it's whether they splash out the money. That's that's the debate that's gone. It's gone on all season. It went on last summer. That's how he's ended up being here on loan. Um, but it's it's a bit it's a bit silly, really, because Rafa is the manager. He's the one who judges uh, players and signings. If they'd paid the sixteen point five million last summer. You know, you've got that player in the bag. They end up paying a two million loan fee, so you're going to end up paying, if you know, eighteen point five million for him overall. If if he eventually eventually comes, plus all the wages and stuff like that, and that's maybe where Newcastle are a bit frightened to to pay too much for a player. You know, going into his thirties. But for me, if he plays as well as he is now, then he's worth every penny. I mean, the frustration will be for Newcastle fans as well. If you don't then tie down Rondon, you're going to need at least two forwards in the summer. Yeah, very much so, because, I mean, Hosselu, he's not even getting in match day squads now on a regular basis. He really is a massive downgrade on Rondon. Whenever he, but that is the one position at the moment in the Newcastle squad where you think they can't accommodate an injury there. Luckily, they are nearly safe now, and Rondon has stayed fit, because although they had both Cher and the Cells injured at the weekend, although they've had... Uh, Longstaff out with an injury they've had players who can come in and accommodate in those positions up front if it's not Rondon then you'll be looking at, at Muto potentially who hasn't shown he can do it yet plus he's a very different type of player you'd have to shift Perez out of position maybe put him up front or bring Hosselu in and, I mean Hosselu just does not offer, offer a goal threat he works very hard his attitude's right but he just doesn't offer a goal threat at Premier League level so Yes, if it, I mean Rondon would seem the easy one in that regard that you can pay the money, but they're going to need someone else regardless. They that they are short up front, and for all the talk of Joe Linton, I think that would be great in terms of some a prospect. I think I mentioned the podcast last week. Maybe you could have Joe Linton as learning off Rondon for two or three years, and then uh, going forward. But that's a lot of money Newcastle would have to spend on those two players. You're talking the best part of fifty million, if not more, which would be a big investment for Newcastle United. But that's the position they're in now. They're gonna strikers are the difference in the Premier League. Rondon scored nine. He's also assisted five or six. He's been crucial in everything that Newcastle have done and so that's in this market, an inflated market as it is as it is, strikers are the most expensive and Newcastle are gonna need at least one, probably two this summer and particularly if Rondon doesn't end up signing permanently. So given that financial strain, Lee, that could be on Newcastle in the summer in terms of bringing in forwards. Obviously, Mo Diarmi's future is still very much up in the air. I feel like we're talking about Rondon Diarmi quite a bit in most podcasts we're doing, but you know, as as it continues to rumble on, I suppose the, the debate's always going to be there. And we know now there actually are a few clubs kind of queuing up to possibly take Diarmi in on a free transfer if Newcastle don't secure that, uh, secure a new deal for Diarmi. 
he started at the weekend, so how close is he to activating that clause now that we automatically trigger a one year deal? Well, we put them, you know, the the talk of you know being three more starts to the club that that was a couple of weeks ago uh, when he hadn't started. We put that to the club, and you know, didn't get didn't get denied or pushed away. So, if if we if we're going off that, then you know, two more starts in the next seven games. He's going to be here for another year anyway because the the clause is it, it just gets triggered, it just it just tops him up with, with a year, which is something you know I don't well he doesn't want it he wants two years. Uh, Newcastle are saying that that's not on the table now unless a conversation's gone on in the last few days, um, you know, the army. It's going to be interesting to see how these next seven games exactly how many he starts because you know if he's got an offer from whether Turkey or China you know it's a couple of clubs in Spain I think are interested as well uh, I know it's a couple of Premier League clubs were linked with them as well the other day if they're going to offer them a two year deal then you know he might just say I don't want to start these games and that that can happen behind the scenes it can just be an agreement and he just ends up being on the bench and, and coming off and then he leaves as an out of contract player at the end of the season which would be it would be a bit of a, a loss, really, especially if he goes to another Premier League club because then they get the benefit of him. So, and it wouldn't have cost Newcastle a penny to to give him the new deal. Taking the football politics out of it, Chris, it was his first off for a while. A, how did he do? And B, as I said, taking the politics away, does he warrant starting again in two weeks' time? I think we saw everything that Diarmé gets praised for and everything that he gets criticised for in one performance on Saturday. There was a few times where he was in possession, particularly early on, where he gave it away, he, he looks ponderous on the ball. And actually on the ball, he, he often isn't great. He sometimes does something quite spectacular every now and again, he puts in a ball or whatever. But the majority of the time, you wouldn't say that technically he's brilliant. But off the ball, he just harries, he frustrates the opposition, he gets around, he's physical. He gives Newcastle something extra in the midfield. And so we saw that in parts on, on Saturday. I thought that... Uh, he was just busy in the middle. That's what he does. And so, does he? Does he warrant a new deal? Yes, I think he warrants a, a, a eight to start at, at Arsenal against a team who will be. Um, they're very technical. They want time on the ball. Diarmi doesn't give you that. He suffocates in the middle. I think that uh, he warrants a start there alongside Hayden. I think the two of them deserve to continue. Um, maybe be different at home. You might bring in Shelby or Key again to give you a bit more of an attacking impetus. But on the road. Yes, and just long term, I think that look, he is thirty one now. He, he is he's advancing, but I think the job that he does and someone to have in the squad, experienced, uh, a common influence, a bit of a leader in the dressing room. I think to have him, even if going forward he becomes a bit of a bit part player, I do think that there is a part for him to play still long term in Newcastle, particularly if Rafa Benitez is going to be convinced to stay. Arguably, when you look at Newcastle's squad, not even arguably, it is the strongest department, is the defence. We saw Federico Fernandes and Paul Dummer come back into the team at the weekend. Obviously, that was born out of necessity because of the injury to the cells, the suspension for Fabian Shea. Um, But, I mean, how do they do? I mean, particularly Dummett, look, he had a very good game. Yeah, Dummett, he just just gives his all every, every match. And, you know, his all's normally... You know, seven out of ten or something, as people keep uh, making the joke out of. But no, he, he's, you know, for me, he's always a seven or eight out of ten type of player. Um, very rarely dips below the levels. Uh, does exactly as he's, he's told in terms of his role. And you know, Rafa was able to rely on him, put him in the middle of a five-man 
defensive rear guard and you know he'd done well I mean the clearance off the line was uh, was perfect wasn't it really I mean it uh, brought back memories of Barry Venison back in the day at Luton uh, overhead kick clearance uh, but this time you know it, it meant more because it, you know Newcastle were able to stay in the game and you know go on to get a point so you know you wouldn't be getting the captain's arm man on the Rafa if he, if he didn't feel you could bring something to the table so uh, yeah, it's, it's positive for him to come in. Fernandez would looked a bit. I don't know. He started off okay, but the penalty was, you know, for a player who's experienced to to put himself in that position. I thought that was that was poor. And then obviously for the second goal, he backed off and off, and uh, you know there were two one down. So it wasn't the, the greatest return to the team. If I'm being honest. And Chris, in in terms of the players who played on Saturday we've had a pretty settled start on 11 since Miguel Almiron's come into the team um, but as I said there obviously Diarmi has started Fernandes and Dummett come in the likes of Shelby Muto Atsu come off the bench Newcastle you know, seem to have a lot more options now they do very much have a lot more options and I think that's partly the system players can play in different positions uh, you can accommodate a few additional attacking players um, and really, if you, I think a few players have stepped up their level because they realise even if they're going to make a match to a squad, never mind get on the pitch, they're going to have to really step it up. We've seen that from Shelby. Mudo, who hasn't always been in around in recent weeks, he came on. I thought he was busy, he was lively. And Atsu, I, I thought, was excellent when he came on at the weekend it, in a perverse sort of way. Almir on arriving has actually upped Atsu's level and benefited him and it hasn't benefited him in the sense that he's out of the team so it seems a strange thing to say because he was regularly playing them but I think that he realises now that he has to make an impact in attack when he's on the pitch he was doing so much off the ball he was doing very well for Newcastle he was an important part of that team but now when he comes on he's got to make an impact and when he did come on I thought he, he made life hell really for, for Charlie Daniels down the left Daniels gave away a foul with just outside the penalty area Um. Atu got into a few good positions. He was the one who forced the back pass that wasn't. And I, I think that... So everyone's just up their level a little bit. And Benitez has options. He believes in competition. He believes that that improves the level of everyone. And hopefully they've got that at the moment. Look, there's certain areas where there's still that quality and they still need uh, some key additions. But I do think... I've written this in a piece today just saying the squad is stronger now. The, the, the positions may be identical on the table, but I think they've evolved from this time last year. I think there is progress being made and there is something for Benitez to believe he can build on and that's why I think it'll be hard for him to leave but he still will only commit his future once he knows he can make this team which the foundations are there into the team he wants them to become and Lee the likes of Shelby and Mutu haven't had many chances recently but we've seen with Rafa Benitez team selections in the past when players have gone into national breaks and they haven't been on the training ground for two weeks and certain players have that he will spring a couple of selection surprises in the next team so you, you look at the likes of Almiron, Rondon, the likes of Yedlin, Cher, Dummett, are going to be a winning national duty. Mm. Do any of those lose their places and the likes of Muto could probably could possibly come in? I think what he's doing is he's like just he's keeping people interested. Uh, Muto came back in to the squad against West Ham, then you know suddenly he was, he was back out in the cold and then he was back this week and he actually got a run out and you know he's he just seems to be rotating. He's his subs and, and keeping people on the toes and uh, I think that's what he'll do towards the end of the season and you know hopefully um, it'll get to the last you know two or three games where Newcastle are completely safe 
and he can maybe have a look at something different you know maybe some players might step out and, and get a rest um, and you know maybe Muto can get a, a run in the team because let's be honest it's been a disappointing year for him uh, he, he's had injury problems he's had the Asian Cup situation where he went over and you know was unavailable in Newcastle didn't really want to go uh, and then they got told by the Japanese FA that he, he definitely had to play so there's so many things haven't gone for him really and next year he'll be probably a stronger player but it'd be good to see him just finish the season on a bit of a high and, and get, get a few games Shelby probably the same as well um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him uh, in the summer Just a final point on the, the Bournemouth game um, people have made a lot of it Matt Ritchie's goal he celebrated it was against his former team I think you can excuse it in the circumstances given you know, it was a very good goal it was in front of the away end. It was the 94th minute. It, you know, not many people aren't going to celebrate in that situation. But I'd like to know where you guys kind of stand on that debate. Do you, do, is it acceptable for a player going to the former club, celebrating when they score a goal? Yeah, I always find it strange that people get so head up on this either way. Some people get offended that people do celebrate and some people get offended about the fact that they don't celebrate. And I just don't really understand. It's personal, again, it's personal preference how a player wants to celebrate. If you've had an emotional connection with a club, I can understand why you've done your professional job. You haven't been any less professional by scoring against them. If anything, you'd be more professional. But you've decided you don't want to, to overtly celebrate that because you've got an emotional connection with that club or a professional connection. But then again, the professional in some players will think, no, that, that's my past now. I'm working for whoever club this is. In Matt Ritchie's case, Newcastle United now, I want to celebrate. I, I don't really have a strong opinion on it either way. I've, I've never really understood why people get so emotional about it. As I say, I think it's personal preference. Lee? Um, uh, it depends on the circumstances, really. Uh, it, and it depends on the, 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 the nature of the celebration. I mean, if you're running... If you're running around and you're inciting people after you've scored, then I don't that that's very good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, they tapped Newcastle so many times in the past for former players coming back and and celebrating. Uh, it's you know you just kind of expected almost uh, thought Matt Ritchie celebration or response to scoring was was fine at the weekend, wasn't it? Really, he didn't he didn't rub it in even when he came off the pitch. He just gave a little thumbs up to the Bournemouth fans as he, as he went off so I think it was fine um, and you know hopefully uh, the the issue is continues to be, the, the debate continues to be Newcastle players scoring against the former clubs rather than the other way around so I thought it was fairly respectful to be fair it wasn't like the man of the water war doing, doing backflips and somersaults when uh, he, he was still our player as well International break coming up now, Chris. Two weeks ago, when I hosted the podcast, we were talking about Rafa Benitez's future, and we we said I put the, put it to you then: could it be, could there be a chance during that international break? I mean, he said now there's going to be a, 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 a five day break, I believe, for the players. Could there be a chance for him to sit down with the hierarchy now and trying to thrash out a few of these issues? Well, you asked him, didn't you, Lee? After the, after the game, you said. Uh is now a good time to be able to sit down with Lee Charney and he sort of smirked and just said uh, there's pl- was it plenty of time yeah. or something but yeah. I, I mean I think that was just meant in general not just, just now there was plenty of time between now and the end of the season so it would seem logical that over the, the course of four I'd be, I'd be shocked if at some point some conversation doesn't take place I don't mean formal talks or anything like that but they could well happen but I certainly think there'll be some sort of 
communication over the next four nights will be folly not do. Newcastle, as I said, are just about there survival-wise. Yes, they're not quite there, but realistically, I think very few people on Tyneside or at the club expect them to go down now. And so it would, it would make sense in a lot of ways if they could sit down and say, look, these are a few issues. There isn't a match to worry about this weekend. These are a few of the, thing, the key points where we're still not on the same page. Where can we go moving forward on that? Do I think that by the end of this fortnight that Rafa Benitez is going to have signed a new contract? No, I'd be highly doubtful of that, but I'd like to think that there's at least some movement behind the scenes. I mean, what, what they can do is they can, they can get something ready for the minute that Newcastle are declared safe and then they can go, right, there you go, and then ha- try to have a happy... That would seem like the logical, sensible thing to do is to start... You know, look, let's be honest, they're safe. They're pretty much safe. So start talking now. And to be fair, I think, you know, from the club's point of view, I've done a piece um, on Sunday which was saying the, the ball really now is, is in Rafa's court. They've said, we want you to stay. They've put the, the offer is, is in writing to him. So it's it's really up to him to decide what he wants to do now and whether, can he accept the terms that are in place? And the, the two sticking points are the training ground's not going to get transformed dramatically in the next few months and the money situation could be as frustrating as it's, it's always ever been so it's it's whether Rafa can live with the conditions the way they are and enjoy all the good things so that you know being loved by the crowd and the players and you know working hard and getting results but he's just he's I think he might have just had enough of you know, being in a relegation battle every year, yeah, and he and he wants to do something a, a bit more, and really he should be encouraged by Newcastle to do that. But you know what they like; they keep saying we'll cut our cloth accordingly, and there's um, not not so much limited funds now, but you know, very much controlled what he can do and what he can't do. Lee, you broke the story last week about the academy changes and the the, the loan coordinator. I think is the official title yeah. that's been given. Uh, obviously, Ben Dawson will move into a more technical role as part of that. But I mean, is it fair to say that you know Newcastle aren't in terms of infrastructure aren't going to be improving the training ground anytime soon? But rather than yes, call for improvements to the academy. Seemingly, this is an improvement to the academy. I would say so. I mean, it's, it's definitely going to be, the loan coordinator is going to make such a difference for a for a job that isn't. It's not one of the most spectacular jobs in football, but it's a really important role. I mean, all, all the top clubs have got them. Um, some of them call them, you know, pathways managers. So it just helps um, the young player develop. And, you know, maybe someone like a Dan Barley's, uh, you know, might not be playing for Akron Stanley now. They could be, you know, playing in a championship club higher up, could even be playing for Newcastle in the first team, had things been a bit differently. And uh, I mean, there's loads of examples we've done in the article the other week with people like Adam Campbell, Adam Armstrong, Jack Annick. There's loads of players who've had potential, but unfortunately haven't had the right loan moves at the right time. Um, I mean, Jack Annick not, didn't, couldn't get out of the club on loan. They just kept playing him in the reserves. So it's someone managing that side of it, and it's, it's an important role. And, you know, I, I don't think they could, they'll, they'll not be... There won't be any building like work going on down there. It'll just be changes behind the scenes, and uh, it's all set up and ready to go down there. It is a good facility at the academy. I've been down there a few times, and um, yeah, you just hope that eventually this results in Newcastle bringing more, you know, Dummets and Longstaffs through, through the system. 
I mean, Chris, in theory, it's a, it's a great move. And, and when you read what this Lunka one will be doing, I think it, 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 could have, it has the potential to be a really good decision from Newcastle. But, you know, you look at it and you think, oh, well, this little kind of prevent a Freddie Woman situation happening. Because I think it was interesting when you look at the England of the 21 squad on Thursday. Freddie Woman's firmly the third choice now in England of the 21 level, yet at the start of that season. He was the number one choice ahead of Angus Gunn, ahead of Dean Henderson, who Gareth Southgate now said are actually on the horizon of the senior squad. You know, Newcastle, whether you like it or not, have let a talent like Freddie Woman stagnate. So, in theory, this little manager will, will prevent a situation like that. But in practice, as we're seeing with the likes of Elias Sorensen, the likes of Callum Roberts and Jamie Sterry, who have now been recalled because they didn't really play for their loan side to join the January. In practice, what can this loan coordinator kind of do to make sure a club is playing them because ultimately it won't be their decision it'll be the manager of the club they've joined on loan well it's about building relationships and I think that one of the things Benitez readily accepts is that he doesn't have the knowledge and relationship with a lot of lower league managers so a lot of the clubs where these players are going to he doesn't know the style of play necessarily at them he doesn't know the environment the player's going to be going into, he doesn't know the manager necessarily. And it will be this loan coordinator's job to make sure that as many clubs in the Football League, in the Scottish League, wherever, that he builds a relationship, he finds out who are the clubs who you deal with properly, uh, who who is going to give them game time, get certain reassurances. And there's going to be so much done, and some loans will not work out. That's just the reality. It's like any transfer. Some transfers don't work out. Not every single loan is going to be successful. It's, it's about gaining information. It's about gaining knowledge. Having someone whose sole job is to make sure that they do build those relationships and connections and the pathways into these other teams. And at the moment, Newcastle don't seem to have that. It, it's difficult. A lot of clubs don't have that. But it, this extra person whose sole responsibility will be for that, hopefully they can, they can try and, and minimise the risk and, and lower the chances of there being an Elias Sorensen situation rather than it happening as it seems to be with quite a lot of loan deals from Newcastle it almost seems to be I don't know every second or third loan player Newcastle send out to, to youth to, to the lower leagues the youth players don't seem to get game time hopefully reducing that so it's only one in every five or, or whatever just making sure the chances of that lessen Sticking with the academy Lee you did the story um, earlier this afternoon um saying that Shola Amiobi could have a role in this kind of new revamped academy. I mean, obviously Steve Harper's already there in a goalkeeping coach role. Two players there who've come through the system, been in Newcastle a long time, experienced European football, successes of the club, what have you. Um, it can only be a good thing, can't it, to have figures like that who have been there and done it? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. that this The jobs that are available, I know there's a lot of high-profile Candidates that have gone for them. Shaul Amiobi's, you know, just just one of the the names that have have gone in for it. Um, and I think it's going to be an exciting time, really, for the academy to to get to get those you know roles filled. Um, and also you know get the job underway. Steve Harper has probably been a, a big success this season coming in. Uh, he's obviously coming as a goalkeeping coach, but I think he brings a bit more to it because he's got that experience, as you say, and he's been there and he's been through it all. And especially with the going out on on loan side of things, he's uh, he's got the that experience, uh, and you know the the more experience you have behind the scenes, the better. Uh, ben Dawson moving into more technical role, an, an FA coach who's you know he's got I think he's got every qualification 
you can get I think in coaching so it's good that now he's going to be you know head of the coaches and make sure they've got all the, the right uh, tools for the job and you know Newcastle's academy it's so important you know there's a massive there's got to be more players out there that, you know that Newcastle can get through the system you know years ago you had the the teams in the 80s that had, you know, Gaza and Paul Stevenson, Joe Allen and players like that. And then after, after after that, you had people like, you know, Lee Clark, Steve Watson, Steve Howie. So it's a massive catchment area. It's just a case of, you know, getting the most out of that because the last thing you want is players slipping through the net, you know, like Michael Carrick and Peter Beardsley originally did and Alan Shearer originally did. And, you know, Newcastle then have to go out and pay money to get their own players back. So it's important that they get things right behind the scenes. Well, hopefully it's an exciting time for the academy. Moving away from that, FA Cup weekend just gone by there, the quarterfinals. You've now got a situation in the semi-finals where you've got Wolves, Watford and Brighton in the final four of the FA Cup. Newcastle fans will look at that enviously because, you know, all three of those teams are on a similar level, ability-wise, to Newcastle. And people may look back at the Watford game where you know, there, was, there was a lot of changes made, made to that. But then other people are count that and say, well, Watford made a lot of changes in that game as well. It was just unlucky that they came out on top. Where do you stand on the cup debate? Do you think Newcastle should have taken it a bit more seriously? I do think they should have taken it a bit more seriously. Or what frustrated me in the two Blackburn games was I didn't really understand what the end goal was because in the first match Benitez put out a weakened team and they were getting beat and then he brings on his stronger players and, and they got a replay which he didn't really want now I would have thought you either decide right I'm going to put out a reserve team I think can win but if they don't then that happens by the by you've rested your players for a reason you didn't want them to get injured Shelby ended up getting injured actually in that match uh, he re-injured himself and so I didn't really understand his approach at that point but in my opinion Newcastle should have taken the cup more seriously the issue was obviously the league position they were in then it's different now you look at it and think they've got a bit more squad depth and actually this comes in as a pertinent point to the to about Rafa Benitez's future if does he want to be here this time next year or say January next year where he feels he can't play a strong team in the FA Cup because he needs to focus on survival no he won't be you want to think right I want to have a strong enough team so that I can be getting to January we're in a safe enough position in the league hopefully higher mid table that he can play a strongest team and he actually prioritise the cup at the moment he doesn't feel he can do that his first season there's obviously promotion was uh, the be all and end all then it's become avoiding relegation the last two years so squad and ambition plays a part and he will be saying look I want to have a go at these cups he feels he hasn't been able to give them the proper opportunity so far I temper that argument slightly and still I didn't really understand his approach this year in, in those games but at the same time if he is given the chance to, to really have a go at the cups and if that's what he could target I think he would I think it's probably a fair argument Lee, which is, which is, which I don't know if you would agree but as Chris said there you know, if, if Newcastle were in a slightly healthier position come January, they could have attacked the cup more. You look at, I, I mentioned there that you feel Newcastle are at a similar ability level to the likes of Wolves, to the likes of Watford, to the likes of Brighton, who are in the semi-finals now and have a real chance of winning the competition. But all three of those teams, Wolves and Watford are now challenging for seventh place. Brighton have obviously kind of slipped back into the relegation battle a bit, but at the time, we're comfortably mid-table. You know, is it a case then that Newcastle have to be comfortably mid-table before they can seriously think about mounting a challenge for an FA Cup 
I think you look at the teams I've got there and it, it is quite difficult to, to fathom really um, what happened. But as you say, Watford, I think, made 11 changes on the day. They just approached the game with a better attitude than Newcastle, a much better attitude. Newcastle looked like they'd just thrown the towel in in that game. Even in the first half, it was just an awful game. I I just think that the whole philosophy of the club needs to, to change in terms of if you want to do well in the Cups, you know, get it across the squad at the very start. I know there was talk yeah, a couple of years ago about them getting a million bonus if they won the FA Cup, but how seriously the players were taking that, I don't know. Um, it didn't go down well. And now it all seems to be about the Premier League, about safety and survival. And that's just drummed into the players. And if, if you give them an excuse in the cup not to perform, then then they'll take it. And it, it, I don't know. It's, it's, I can't. An, I can't answer the question fully because it, I can't get right into the, the heads of the players. But you know, my my memories of you know the the FA Cup with Newcastle going to you know the FA Cup final in ninety eight and ninety nine and the semi final in two thousand. You know, fans lying in the streets. You know, when they came back from the two cup finals. Open top bus, no cup to show for it, but still everyone, the whole city gets behind a cup run, and you know Newcastle just don't, it just doesn't seem to interest the current um, hierarchy at all. They, they don't seem to to be interested in it, and um, it's as I've wrote a couple of times, it's very strange because if you when you go into the the executive levels at St James Park, all the deco is like pictures of FA Cup winning teams and the Fairs Cup and all that. So they're kind of like celebrating the history, but they don't want to, you know, try and do anything to add to that for the future. And uh, I just find it very strange. But the top and bottom of it is they're frightened to do well in the cup because if it means you're going to get relegated and do a Wigan Athletic um, or a Birmingham when they won the League Cup a few years ago, then they're worried about ever coming back. And it just seems to be a strange way to operate. In terms of the thing with with Rafa as well is that. This is one of the reasons which I've always that I've always lent towards the fact that I think he is as much as possible wants to stay because he knows that if he could be the person who delivers one of these trophies, that is legendary status. I mean, he's already regarded so highly by the fan base, but if he was to break the now fifty-year records it is is for a, well, that's any trophy for a domestic trophy, you have to go back to nineteen fifty-five. He wants to be the man to do that. He hasn't felt he's been in the position to do it yet. But he wants to be able to prioritise that, be it via the FA Cup, the League Cup, or see if they were to get in the Europa League. But to, to do that, the best route to do that is by winning one of those trophies. And so uh, he he knows how important that is to this region. And I think that he 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 values that so highly. And he felt he hasn't been in a position to do that. Now, I, I still would question some of the decisions he's made in the FA Cup. I think there's been some strange occasions uh, in terms of his approach to some of those matches but at the same time he's felt conflicted and until he's in a position where he doesn't feel conflicted I think there's always going to be that doubt about long term whether he wants to stay he wants to have a go at the cup competitions at some stage but he hasn't had that yet I'm hoping Newcastle's record in the cup competitions improves I just want to touch on a success off the pitch while we're talking about the frustration on the pitch and um, the guys at War Flags have now hit that 15,000 target for the, the giant saver flag which I think will look brilliant um, you know, some of the displays they've had this season have been brilliant. I mean, the Almiron one particularly uh, sticks out with the memory. I think how how good of an addition have those guys been to the the match day atmosphere at St James's Park? Yeah, I mean it's the the whole 
the whole feel of the the stadium is different now because because of the efforts they put in behind the scenes. Uh, a lot of them doing it, you know, voluntarily as well. You know, but, you know, getting the the flags all ready and stuff in in the build up to home games, and you've got to give them like ten out of ten for everything they've done in terms of improving the atmosphere. Uh, you know, you go back again, stepping back in the past. I remember the the big, the huge banners uh, in the early nineties in the Keegan era, and they made a huge difference to to the stadium. And you know, they've done that now again. They've recreated that, so the, the players just need to recreate things on the pitch now. And Chris, you spoke to the guys about about that that surfer flag, and I mean, you know, how to, if you're if you're a a player looking at potentially joining Newcastle, I mean. You see what they did for Almiron. He hadn't even played a, g- a minute of St James's Park and gets a display like that. Surely that's got to be encouraging you to come come and join a team like Newcastle. Oh, very much so. I mean, the reaction back in Paraguay, in the US, in Atlanta for the reception that Almiron received was was quite incredible. And they they he's just been embraced by the fans in general, but also that was that was a show of that. The the unity flag I thought was brilliant. Uh, when they did that one, they've got the big surfer flag now. And it was when I spoke to to the uh, to the guys at War Flags, and they said about what they were trying to achieve. It's one of those things where you you check back about three or four times and I say, I said, so you want it to make a flag which is going to be the entire size of the Gallagher end? Yeah, we're going for this. This it won't necessarily be a world record because the issue with that is there's a stadium in Brazil where it's like a bowl shape, and so you can go all the way around. And they had a flag that size, but it'll certainly be a European record and a, a Premier League record. And so yeah, they're going for. I think it's going to weigh something like thirty six tons or something. Uh, th- sorry, not tons. Thirty six stone. Sorry, thirty six <laughs> tons would be a lot. Thirty six stone. <laughs> yeah, we're not crushing everyone there. No, 30, 36 stone, which in itself is is still substantial, and it's it's going to be like 70 odd metres by 90 odd metres and um, the, the guys are, they put so much, well the guys and girls have put so much time into this, the amount of effort they put into all this, but it's all fan donations that have come forward for this, fans have really bought into it and it's interesting because speaking to them one thing they said was that they've had like offers from corporate groups and people like that but they've always said no to that because they want this to be the fans given their part of it. It's all fan dominated. And one brilliant thing I think will be on the flag is that everyone who has donated, their name is going to be somewhere there on it. There's going to be a message within it and, and that's going to be spelled out using the names uh, of, of people at the ground. So it's one thing that I think the club have embraced. They've done very well with it. The the they, the guys behind it couldn't give uh, enough praise for the fact that they've been allowed access to the stadium. They've been allowed to do... Uh, all the things that they have at the ground and so this is a positive measure and hopefully going forward it continues and I can't wait to see the flag they were suggesting it might be uh, first game of next season although I'm going to speak to them this week and find out if it, if it might be sooner but it's sounding like they were, they were planning hopefully for the start of next season Well I think you know we will echo the sentiments of every Newcastle fan by saying we can't wait to see that display and well done again to the guys at War Flags for getting that over the line um, we're coming up to about 55 minutes now so I think we'll bring this to a close. What I want to do with both of you guys now is look at Newcastle's end of season running. Uh, they're on 35 points at the minute and what you think they'll end up with at the end of the season. So if you look at the running, they've got Arsenal away, Crystal Palace at home, Leicester away, Southampton at home, Brighton away, Liverpool at home, what could be a huge game in terms of the Premier League title race in the second last game of the season. And Newcastle end of the season at Craven Cottage with Fulham away from home. Lee, 35 points at the minute, seven games I mentioned there. How many points do you think Newcastle finish out at the end of the season? I think they're capable of getting about nine or ten more points, to be totally honest. And that would, you know, 
to put them close to what they got last season. I don't think it's going to be enough to get them in the top 10 this time, though, because if you look at, I think, Leicester already on 41, aren't they? So I think it's 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 been a tougher league this year. So and they're going to have to do something spectacular to finish in the top 10 now. Um, but you never know. Uh, the way Rafa looks at it, he just keeps them winning and keeps them ticking along. Um, they're more than capable of, of doing something on that terms. But for me, I think probably about nine or 10 more points. Chris? Well, Benitez teams tend to end the season strongly. Last season, though, when they reached the survival mark, suddenly they went, they lost four games in succession, lost their heads a little bit. I don't think that'll happen this year. Um, I think a similar sort of points title, I think eight or nine more. I think they'll finish in about 44 ish. I can see them beating Palace at home, I can see them beating Southampton, and then picking up two or three draws, maybe even win at Fulham. So, yeah, I think. Mid forties is, is is where they'll end on, and that'll be a good point to do. Particularly seen as I hadn't won a game for the first ten, you've got to remember that the majority of their points will have come from twenty eight matches, and they'll have been the collected the best part of two on average from those games, uh, which is well one and a half two, which is pretty impressive considering the position they were in. So yeah, I don't see the the, the downturn there was last year. I don't think there'll be the the switch off. Benitez will try and avoid that. But yeah, I can see them yeah picking up two or three more wins. Well, hopefully Newcastle end the season in a positive fashion. Um, that's it for us in this episode, guys. Thanks again for joining us, as always, on the Everything is Black and White podcast in association with eToro. Um, we'll be back later in the week. I think we've got a few special episodes lined up, for, so stick around for those. Um, and keep following our coverage. We'll be bringing you all the latest and casting news across the international break. It will be quiet in terms of football, but... I'm sure there's plenty going on off the pitch as there always is around the club. So stick with us and thanks again for joining us. Yeah.